Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be talking about ethics and creating a culture of trust. It is my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Yonason Goldson to the show. Yonason is Director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC, which teaches professionals how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. He's a keynote and TEDx speaker, trainer, coach, and community rabbi, as well as repentant hitchhiker, recovered circumnavigator, former newspaper columnist, and retired high school teacher in St. Louis. He's authored hundreds of articles applying ancient rabbinic wisdom to the challenges of the modern secular world. His sixth book, Grappling with Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity, came out this past fall. You can visit him at his website, yonasongoldson.com. It is my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Goldson to the show. Thank you, Tina. It's great to be here. So, Yonason, I'm so excited about our conversation. Why don't we kick things off by you telling our listeners a little bit more about your background and how your personal and professional paths looked early in your life and career? Well, the standard uh, thumbnail starts uh, when I graduated college with a degree in English. And of course, a degree in English is is useful for, for uh, well, you could do what I did. You could take it and go hitchhiking across the United States for about half a year. <laughs> and uh, then I crossed the Atlantic, went backpacking across Europe, and I ended up in Israel. And that's where I connected with my Jewish roots. I'd been raised with really no knowledge whatsoever of uh, what Judaism was all about. And I discovered this vibrant culture of, of deep thoughts and uh, profound wisdom. And it changed the trajectory of my life. I uh, spent nine years in Israel, sort of catching up, studying that ancient wisdom. I became an Orthodox rabbi. I met my wife, had our first two children. And then I started off on my career as a high school teacher. So I wanted to impart to uh, Jewish teenagers the, the values and the, and the um, outlook for leading a meaningful and a successful life that I had, I had learned. And I did that for 23 years, uh, one year in Budapest, Hungary, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, where I am now. And when my school closed in 2016, I tried to started to reinvent myself as a platform speaker, trying to take that same wisdom and that same those same outlooks and present them in a way that was relevant to a broader audience uh, for professionals in a business setting and giving keynotes. Uh, and of course, the the new thing for me was learning to be a businessman, which uh, was a challenge. Never thought I would do that or thought I would have to do that. And, uh, you know, saw my business developing and growing and then COVID hit <laughs> and the speaking industry shut down. And now we get to start all over again, try to figure out how to, how to take the message online and reach people in, in a different way. Yeah. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later. One of the things I've been asking a lot of my guests over the past few months, understandably, is what their views are on COVID and how COVID has impacted their business. 
So how did becoming a rabbi prepare you for engaging in the professional world, particularly over the last several years? The most focused and deepest area of Jewish study is the Talmud, which is a vast compendium of the discussions and debates of the sages over hundreds of years. And it's interesting because it doesn't seek to conclusions. It seeks to understand the process of the discussion. And there's a tremendous amount of back and forth debate, postulations, refutations. And in order to learn successfully, one has to be able to see both sides of any issue in a way that each side makes sense, is internally defensible and reasonable. And that's a skill that is so important in really every aspect of our lives, you know, our relationships on a personal level and a professional level, uh, and certainly a political level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see what's Absolutely. Uh, going on these days uh, and has been for a long time. But the ability to understand where someone else is coming from, to see an issue from their side, makes it much easier to actually have some kind of constructive disagreement, which leads to finding common ground, which leads to developing solutions, and, and ultimately leads to working together and creating a sense of community, even when we may see issues differently. Well, and it's really interesting because as you were explaining this, it really reminded me about being a lawyer and what we learn in law school about seeing different sides of an issue, being trained to understand that there's not one right answer. I mean, from our different frames of reference, it may sometimes seem like there's only one right answer. But when you take that step back, there's often different ways to look at a situation. And it's best to, at least in certain circumstances, to look at situations from other people's perspectives. And that's where EQ and empathy come into play as well. Exactly. And you know, my, my mother had always wanted to meet me to be a lawyer from the time and as early as I can remember. <laughs> uh, she still wants me to be a lawyer. She's 92 now. <laughs> There's still uh, time, Jonasson. Yeah, Don't well, that's give what up. she says. Exactly. <laughs> I try to convince her that that essentially what I am is, a, is I'm a, I'm a professor of Jewish law. Somehow that doesn't seem to satisfy her. <laughs> It works for me, though. <laughs> okay. Well, glad to hear it. <laughs> but there is common ground for us in, in that sense. Yeah, uh, yeah to, to be able to, you, you can't really understand your position until you understand the other position. As if I, if I can't understand why, why you believe what you believe, I, how can I be sure that I'm, how can I be sure you're wrong? And, and if I can't understand why you're disagreeing with me, then how can I be sure I'm right? You know, that's a great way to look at it. Lawyers, sometimes with the competitive nature of what we do, they look at it as you really, in some ways, need to understand the other sides. Like if you're looking at it from a, I'm representing the plaintiff or I'm representing the, the defendant perspective, you need to understand what the other side's case, so to speak, is backwards and forwards so that you're able to you know, try to put on an even better case, so to speak, that really reflects the best interests of the position that you're taking, right? Right. So, I mean, you're taking it sort of a step further that, that even from a, even in a competitive type of setting, if I believe that I have the stronger argument, 
then I have to anticipate all of the counter arguments that will be made against me in order to be able to defend my position. That's absolutely right. And uh, we'll continue to touch on this, I think, as we continue our conversation. And I'm looking forward to it. So clearly you had some very important and fulfilling and life-changing experiences relatively early in your in, in your life. You know, that traveling that you had done clearly was very influential. I actually similarly did some traveling. It was for somewhat of an extended period of time after I went to law school and, and took the bar. So I can appreciate how important world travel can be in terms of seeing other perspectives and so forth. When you look at your background and the path that you have taken, is there one or a couple of lessons or turning points in particular that stand out for you? Well, the turning point, certainly. I mean, the, the whole reason I embarked on this, this uh, in hindsight, foolish uh, adventure <laughs> hitchhiking cross-country was because I, I recognized that I had grown up in a very comfortable middle-class bubble. And, and I may have had plenty of book smarts, but I didn't have any street smarts. Uh, I really didn't. You know, I had never been seriously challenged in, in, my, in my life. And, and I wanted to put myself in a situation where I really did have to face the unknown on a daily basis. And one of the things I discovered is that as a hitchhiker, you want to pay for your ride. You're not paying with money you're paying by being of service to the driver. And what many drivers want is someone to listen. And I discovered that people would pour out their hearts to me sometimes. I mean, they would tell me that I never said anything. I've never told this to anyone I know. So the strangers on a train syndrome. And, and I realized that, that I was essentially being their therapist just by listening. But because I was listening without the intent to reply, which is what we so often do, Mm -hmm. I actually heard more of their stories. I learned more about them. And in the process, I learned more about myself because the more we understand other people, the more we understand our place in the world. And that really served me well. And it really goes back to what we were just talking about, that when I got to Israel and I found myself in the presence of a Hasidic rabbi with a big black hat and the long black coat and the scraggly beard and the side locks and the thick glasses. And then I was sure this person was going to sort of you know, pontificate, you know, you better listen to me, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> That's what I was expecting. And then he started speaking and he sounds like a, like a college professor, which I later found out he was. And he was so articulate. I just couldn't reconcile the inconsistency between what he looked like and what I thought he should be and the way he sounded and the way he presented himself to be. And the willingness to listen, to hear, and then to reconsider my stereotypes and my preconceptions is what opened up my mind to a whole world of thought that I never knew existed. Well, and you've done TED Talks on this, right? And um, when we spoke, that is a very provocative discussion and I think is a way to sort of frame conversations that really can shift your your frame of reference. So when you had that encounter, what did you walk away determined to do from that point forward? 
Well, I do. I do talk about this in my TED talk, and and uh, I actually was. I, I wanted to walk out on him the minute he walked in, but I'd taken a seat in the far back corner of the room, and the, the room had filled up with people, and I would have had to <laughs> literally climb over a dozen people to get out and make a spectacle of myself. Um, but because I was trapped there, and I had to listen to him, and he did challenge me to reconsider my stereotypes, my preconceptions. At the end of that lecture. I, I thought to myself, I have to take this person seriously. And if I simply walk away from him because I don't like the way he looks, then I'm not being true to myself. Uh, I'm not being authentic. Uh, you know, I was traveling around and I, I like to fancy myself a, a seeker of truth. But, you know, it's very fashionable to seek truth. It's, it's not very fashionable to find truth. It sounds kind of <laughs> arrogant to say, I found the truth. You know, yeah, who do you think you are? Uh, <laughs> But I realized that, you know, he really he really made a case that held together internally. And I thought it was going to take me a, it could take me a, a few weeks to, to actually punch holes in his arguments or, or prove him wrong. Well, nine years later, I was <laughs> still there and, and had really changed my whole perspective on how to look at the world. So... You've clearly had a lot of experiences, life and professional experiences. At, at this stage in your life and in your career, when people ask you what you do for a living, how do you respond to that question? <laughs> uh, may I ask you a question? Of course. Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't trust anyone from the top all the way down to the front lines? Uh, you know, that's a really great question. I would say the answer to that is yes, with the footnote that, you know, query whether it was the truth that I couldn't trust them or whether it was my perception. Oh, that, that's a, that we could follow that in a different line, but, <laughs> but, but uh, that's a very astute observation. But how did, how did you feel in that situation? You feel very alone. Uh, you sort of feel like you've got that flight, the the fight or flight type of syndrome. You've got you you definitely get the adrenaline pumping in those sorts of situations. Right, and and so I fix that, and I fix it by applying ancient rabbinic rabbinic wisdom to the challenges of the modern secular world by teaching professionals and leaders why good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. So let's let's peel the onion, so to speak, a little bit more on that. So please tell me and tell our listeners a little bit more about what that means and what that looks like for you. Well, no culture, and this is what you just said, no culture can thrive or really survive without trust. And if people don't feel trusted, and if they don't feel they can trust others, they are not going to be committed to their work. They're not going to be committed to their workplace. They're not going to have a sense of mission or purpose. And they're going to be looking for something better and counting the, the hours of the days of the weeks until they can get themselves into another situation. And so what ethics does, what the ethical mindset does, is it fosters trust. And trust inspires loyalty, and loyalty generates passion, and passion drives productivity. And there, the, this, the, the research and the studies, the, the data on this is growing, I mean, rapidly. 
over half a trillion dollars are estimated lost every year in the United States from, from workplace conflict and disengagement. And companies that are rated highest for ethics and trust and as good places to work grow significantly faster than companies that aren't. And all the metrics show that employees are more engaged, are more productive, are more in sync with the the mission and the purpose of where they work, are less prone to burnout, are more likely to recommend the workplace to others as a place that they should look into seeking jobs. And and in terms of brand image, I mean, don't, here in the United States, who doesn't like shopping at Trader Joe's? You not, walk many, in not many people. <laughs> you walk in, everybody's happy. <laughs> right. All the employees are happy. And it, it's it, and you can't help, you know, enjoying the experience of shopping. Even me, I hate shopping. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, my wife says, are you going to tra- Trader Joe's for me? Okay, not a problem. Right? Because you feel that this is a place where you want to be, where everybody there wants to be there. And... When you and you want to patronize companies like that, businesses like that, you want to work with people like that, you want to work for people like that, and you want to give your business to people like that. So I was talking to another you know, host, and and she said to me, "You know, this all makes so much sense. Why doesn't why doesn't everybody do it?" And that really is the is the question because we are in conflict with ourselves. We, we see short-term gains and short-term goals, and those override our objective understanding of the long game that we should be playing. Well, and I think that you know what you say makes so much sense. Obviously, it's a very complicated and complex and nuanced set of circumstances. Um, I'm sure you've read any number of books, including The Speed of Trust, about these types of issues. I'm a big fan of reading these types of books just to look at it from the frame of reference of how to be a better leader, how to create a work environment of collegiality and trust and collaboration. Trust is a very interesting and complicated and necessary thing. And I mean, what do you think of the of, of the proposition that trust means different things to different people? Um, hmm. Interesting. I never really thought about it in those terms. Well, I don't know. I mean, what 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 really does trust mean? It means that we have aligned interests. It means that we'll treat each other fairly. Um, it means that we will support one another to the best of our ability. Uh, I, I suppose you could have, gosh, I don't even, I'm not even sure where to go with that. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there can be unreasonable expect, expectations, but then that, that just really goes back into the question of, of trust. It, it, it becomes a little bit one-sided mm-hmm. if one person is expecting more from another than they're willing to give and put into the relationship. Well, and that's a really good point. And I, I, I think, and that's exactly what I was sort of looking for were, were your thoughts on that. I, I think it's also a recognition sometimes that, you know, well, I mean, trust, I think it's a two-way street. I think to really be able to fairly and realistically want to seek 
like the ability to trust somebody or, or an organization that it's very much a two-way street. You have to conduct yourself and, and be trustworthy yourself because I think where things sometimes break down is, and it sometimes can have a spiraling effect if someone, maybe sometimes both folks in the equation end up doing things that create a lack of trust in the other and not really sort of seeing that it's a dynamic evolving situation where it needs to exist. I think you're absolutely right that you can't have it be either one-sided or you can't have a lack of, of equity, meaning that you can't have somebody putting in 100% and then the other person putting in like 60%, right? Because at some point, there's going to be a breakdown in that ecosystem. Yeah, we know who talks about this is Adam Grant in his book, Give and Take, that if people end up giving and giving and giving, that they can burn out on the relationships. You have to know when to take. And, and from a you know philosophical point of view, we, we all teach our kids uh, or we're taught as kids, it's better to, to give than to receive. Um, we say it, I'm not sure we always mean it, but it's true because giving is empowering. And the greatest gift you can give someone else is the is the ability to give to you because that makes a person feel like I have something to offer. I have a contribution to make, but you're right. There's always this, this sort of balance or even a dance between giving and taking. You have to take in order to let others give and you have to be able to set limits on your own giving so that you have resources and time, energy to take care of your own well-being. That's absolutely right. And that's something I would love to delve into further, but there are a couple of other things I'd love to ask you about in the context of ethics, which is something that you talk about a lot. I would love to sort of compare and contrast certain concepts um, with ethics. So for example, you have said in the past, and I think would still say that compliance is often the enemy of ethics. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, that's um, that's it, it's a really important point, I believe. And of course, I come at everything from from the the point of view of, of uh, theology and, and Jewish history. And in uh, in the year seventy, the the Romans conquered Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple there and uh, exiled uh, the inhabitants of Israel to, to all over their empire. And then the sages, they discussed the, the spiritual reasons why the temple was destroyed. And one of the primary reasons they cite is they said that the people were not going beyond the letter of the law, which is a pretty extraordinary statement. It is. Well, in our language, it means they were in compliance. Right. <laughs> they were following the letter of the law, but they were using the law to manipulate its spirit. They were finding loopholes to circumvent the intent of the law. And so the easiest excuse to defend unethical behavior or even immoral behavior is, I'm in compliance. Ethics is not a, there's no book of ethical behavior. There's no app for ethical decision-making. It is a mindset and it, it helps us to navigate these complicated situations that are neither white nor black, but gray. 
And the problem with compliance, you need compliance. You need to have rules and regulations. But the problem with compliance is that what you're trying to do is legislate ethics. And that, what that does is it, it absolves us of any responsibility for interpreting situations in terms of what's the right thing to do. What is expected of me? What is my duty? How can I make things better? Compliance is the starting point. It's not the end point. So, you know, that's a really provocative statement. And I, I think that you're absolutely right. And we could have a show just talking about that. And it's interesting because as you were speaking about it and about comparing and contrasting compliance with ethics, it made me sort of take a step back and think, when does that manipulation happen? When have we seen it? I'm not sure if you have any interesting anecdotes that you'd like to share with our listeners on that front, but it, it made me sort of scroll back through life circumstances, my, my career, and thinking, you know what, you are absolutely right about how people sort of will sometimes manipulate the whole concept of compliance, you know? Well, if you'd like to give you an example, this isn't, this isn't quite from the business world exactly, but it's just, I think it makes the, uh, it makes the point very, very powerfully. You, you may be aware that the United States government issues $1 coins. You know, in Britain, they have one pound coins that are very popular. And the United States Mint wants to get Americans to use dollar coins because they last longer and ultimately it saves money. The dollar bills wear out pretty fast. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, Americans just don't like these coins. We like our bills, whatever the reason. So um, when when the government started issuing these George Washington dollar coins, I think it's been close to 20 years now. They tried an incentive program. They say, you go online, you can order a pack of 40 coins, $40, pay with your credit card. We'll ship you the coins postage free. And this way people can easily get the coins and they can get them into circulation. So what did some clever people do? They ordered a lot of coins, in some case, thousands of dollars of coins took them straight to the bank and deposited them into their accounts and also deposited the credit card points that they used <laughs> to buy the coins. And one Why guy am I not surprised? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one guy bragged that he, he got enough points buying coins to take a trip to Tahiti. Well. That's pretty exotic. Yeah. And now, now who's paying for his trip to Tahiti? We are. Right, we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to pay for his, Tahiti, his trip to Tahiti, and I don't think you do either. And of course, his defense is, I didn't do anything illegal. It's true. He didn't. But clearly, the intent of the offer was to get the coins into circulation, not to give you some clever trick to get points on your credit card. So in our terms, he wasn't out of compliance. He didn't break any laws, but he clearly did something that was manipulating the system for his own profit at others' expense. That's a great example. And I think that it really demonstrates what we all sort of intuitively felt as you were explaining how compliance is often the enemy of ethics. So thank you for providing that example you know, shifting to looking at another sort of facet of ethics in the context of business. 
I think there are a lot of business owners and managers and leaders out there that might think that they have to choose, at least some of the time, between ethics and profits. How do you respond to people who look at the business world through that lens? Well, it's, uh, if you go on my website, you'll find that right, uh, <laughs> right up there on the homepage that we don't have to choose between being successful and being good. And in fact, that's, that's a, a catastrophic mistake. And it goes back to how we started this conversation about trust. If your employees, if your colleagues, if, if your business associates, if your customers and your clients and the people you work with uh, see that your primary focus is on immediate profits at the expense of integrity, they're not going to, they're not going to respect you. They're not going to trust you. And they may work with you if they have to, but they're always going to be watching their backs. And in an ethical culture, in a culture with trust, we're watching each other's backs. I mean, in my keynote speech, I talk about a principal I worked with, worked for for 20 years. And, you know, he was, he was a remarkable administrator in that every teacher knew that he would back us up, he would defend us, he would do anything he could to get us what we needed. And he stayed out of our way. If we needed support, he was there. If we didn't, he let us be on our own. We were enormously successful. We were a tiny school, a little private school with no academic admissions requirements whatsoever. And yet year after year, our students' test scores matched those of the most prestigious private schools in the state. And it happened because he was looking out for the teachers. And because he was looking out for the teachers, the teachers were looking out for the students. His priority was the students, but he knew that the way to serve the students was by supporting the teachers. And then when he needed our support, when the, when the board was dealing very unreasonably with him, uh, they wouldn't give him a contract except from year to year, so he had no job security. And we, the teachers, organized ourselves. We wrote a letter to the board without his knowledge, telling them we wouldn't go back to our jobs in the fall unless they offered him a standard three-year contract. Now, you talk to teachers, you're not going to hear a story like this very often. But we knew he always had our backs, and so we were going to have his. That is a really great story. These are complicated issues. You know, they are really complicated issues that we all have to sort of navigate through. Um, how do you recommend that business owners and managers address these issues as they come up? I know that a lot of the work you do is working with business owners and managers and other leaders to navigate these sorts of things. What, like, how do you advise people to address these in a constructive way? It's, you know, in principle, it's not hard. You know, in practice, it's a little harder. I mean, we call them hard conversations because they're uncomfortable. And most of us don't like conflict. And if we do, that's a bigger problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just one one little story that has always stuck in my mind. Even it's such a little thing, but I, I was I was at the, uh, the physical therapist and, and I was lying on the table and, uh, and she was working on me, and and she was complaining to me that she had been renting an office, a room in an office, for years, and that she'd become very friendly with the people from whom she rented and they were very good to her, but they kept raising the price, and they were going to raise it again to the point where she couldn't afford to stay there. And she felt torn. On the one hand, 
she liked being with them. She did, she she felt they were friends. She didn't want to just leave. On the other hand, from a business point of view, they weren't leaving her, leaving, leaving her with much option. She didn't know how to handle the situation. And so I said, tell them your problem and tell them that they need to make a choice, either to lower the price or to let you go. And by, you know, she was so filled with anxiety over what was she going to tell them, all she had to do was reframe it, present them with two options, either of which would be acceptable to her, and let them make the choice. So by bringing others into the conversation and exchanging the points of view, having, you know, it's a cliche, the transparency that we keep talking about and don't hear so much, the communication that should go on but often doesn't, these are the ways that you create an environment of trust. When people feel that they are heard, that Mm -hmm. they're respected, and that their opinions and points of view are taken into account, that's how you create a culture of trust. Very simple. It seems like a simple recipe, but in execution, it can be a pretty tough balance to strike sometimes, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, that's that's where you need practice. You know, I, I have a new book coming out called Grappling with the Gray. And, and it's titled that because we have to grapple with situations that are gray, that are neither black nor white, and the gray matter. <laughs> you know, it's we have to we have to challenge our, ourselves to think through these complicated situations. Essentially, the, the book is a, is a collection of scenarios, like the one I just gave you about the coins. And, it, and it's, it offers guided discussions of how to work through these kinds of dilemmas, looking at each side, and then trying to come to some sort of an equitable uh, solution or compromise. That's great. It's really unfortunate that we're almost at the end of our first segment together. I did want to sneak in one more question before we get your final thoughts about the first part of our conversation. You've said that answers to modern problems can be found in ancient teachings. Can you give us just a couple of examples of that? Uh, Sure. Um, I love the quote from King Solomon, as water reflects one face to another, so to the heart of one person to another. And very often we project our feelings, our thoughts, our expectations onto others. And sometimes by doing that, we actually create that response in others. You know, if, if you approach somebody looking for a fight, looking for an argument, looking for a conflict, there's a good chance you're going to get it. If you approach someone looking for a reasonable discussion, looking for an effort to make peace and to find compromise, there's a good chance you're going to find that. Our own disposition is going to affect how others interact with us because it affects how we interact with them. And so King Solomon's telling us, um, you your, your, the expression on your face is a projection of what's going on inside of you. And, and if you adapt uh, and you, you prepare your mindset in a positive way, there's a, much more, there's a much greater likelihood that you're going to get a positive response. Again, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that King Solomon, obviously very wise man, has taught all of us a lot. 
And I think we hear different ways of framing that, right? I mean, some people just call it, you know, whether it's the law of attraction, I think it's a certain aspect of it about what you put out in the world is what you get back. And I, I think that there's a lot of, of truth to that, that it's all about, you know, so much of our communication is nonverbal, right? So there is the what you say, but then there's the way you say it, the energy that you sort of put out in the world as you're communicating either one-on-one or with others in a bigger group. Um, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, and that's why you know texting and and emails and and letter writing, it, it has a purpose, but often we end up communicating more or less than we intended, because the nuance of our thoughts and our feelings is not communicated through the written word. Uh, so we do have to be careful about that, and and uh, you know sometimes you can use. The, the, the email to start a conversation or to revisit or, or summarize a conversation to make sure that everybody is prepared or everybody's on the same page afterwards. But there has to be that personal face-to-face interaction. And when we hold ourselves responsible to have a, you know, an ethical approach in the way we deal with people, then that is going to solicit from them uh, a much more reciprocal uh, frame of mind and attitude. That's great advice. I can't wait for the second part of our conversation. Do you have any final thoughts as we wind up our first segment together? Um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners and where can they find you? Um, one one thought that, uh, and again, I'm talking about this in my, in my TED talk, that whenever you encounter a person who holds a position that's difficult for you to understand. Before you argue, try to articulate their point of view, if possible, to them, so you can hear from them whether you represented them correctly, or to yourself, so you can try to see how you can make sense out of a position that challenges your your, your own preconceptions. When we do that, we increase the chance we're actually going to be able to see the perspective of someone else. Uh, And so we won't immediately slip into that confrontational attitude or or behavior. I always love the opportunity to take these conversations further. So uh, listeners can find me online. Uh, My website is my name, yonasongoldson.com, Y-O-N-A-S-O-N-G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn and uh, not as much, but also on the other uh, social media platforms. Jonasson, I've really enjoyed our first um, segment of time together, and I look forward to continuing our conversation. As do I. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Jonasson Goldson, and we hope that you will join us next week for part two of our conversation. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.